1053. I'd like us looking in our scripture this morning because it's not my words. It is the Lord and we believe it is true. believe it's alive and active, able to uh, apply um, correction, rebuke, and training. So as we go into uh, this verse, uh, a couple of verses from verses 29 to 34 of chapter 1 in John, I would like to just show us in our text uh, this morning another name that our Lord Jesus is called as we go through this uh, short series of the names of Jesus, leading us nicely into Christmas. Um, there are possibly over a hundred names and titles that refer to our Lord relating to His nature, His positions in the Trinity, and His work on earth. And in this first chapter of John alone, we get about seven of these titles, right, right off the bat, attributed to Jesus. So this first chapter, we get the Word, the Light, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the more familiar titles, and that is the Lamb of God. And I want to hone in on that this morning, and I'm going to go through the text that we have in 29 to 34, and so I'll highlight the points surrounding that, but I will come full circle on Jesus as the Lamb of God towards the end. And the three things I want to show you is, number one, John the Baptist. I want to talk about him, the forerunner John. Second point is the greater baptism that Jesus brings, and then Jesus, the worthy Lamb of God. I'm going to read our text, and after that, we'll pray. John 1, 29-34. Let's look with me. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us now by your Spirit to see your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus. Help me now as I preach. May I be bold in proclaiming your truth. And Lord, may the rest of us be attentive to listen and that your work uh, applied into our hearts, I pray, as we hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you, any of you been to the, the Golden Globes or the Oscars? Highly unlikely, right? No offense. But... <laughs> We've probably seen this in the TV live broadcasts, you know, it's kind of fun to watch them, or on YouTube nowadays. What would you normally see in those prestigious events? Flashing lights from cameras? The red carpet? Celebrities? Like in a movie premiere? Well, this scene we have here by the River Jordan was nothing <laughs> like that at all, other than the fact maybe that there would be this celebrity who would be on the red carpet, so to speak, that nobody would have known anything special about up until this point, 
So in my absolute feeble analogy there, John the Baptist was the one to lay this proverbial red carpet, pointing the spotlight, as it were, on this celebrity that was not celebrated in the least, announcing his coming, the Lord Jesus. Anyway, there you go. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to highlight John the Baptist briefly here because there's a fair bit of pronouns here in our passage. And I just want to allocate them to the specific persons here. And in this verse, the one who saw Jesus coming toward him was John, John the Baptizer. Related to the Lord biologically, you know, I mean, their mothers were cousins, remember Mary and Elizabeth? The one who dressed ruggedly, camel hair and leather belt, prophet fashion, and ate bugs. The, um, the one who was famous, or infamous rather, for calling everyone sin out and calling all to repent, to come back to God. He definitely did not shy away from stomping on toes of even kings. Guess how John went to heaven? He did things very similar um, to prophets like Elijah in that regard. In fact, the angel told his father Zechariah that he was going to do just that. In Luke 1, 16 to 17, it says, Zechariah prophesying in the spirit, he said of, of his son, and he will turn away, uh, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was his destiny, John the Baptist. It didn't matter what or who you were, you would have been called out by John. John the Baptist, the considered the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant, gets to be the one who would pull the curtain for the great reveal. The one who cuts the ribbon, as it were. Uh, the one who gets to literally point in physical person at the long-awaited Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah could only point from afar at this uh, Savior. The 400-plus years of silence is finally broken. Matthew 3, quoting Isaiah 40, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Have a glance there at verse 6. In verse 6, you can see it there that John was sent from God. And to do what? To bear witness and to pave the way for the Messiah. How did he do that? Besides literally pointing at Jesus. Well, he was baptizing people. And this baptism, a baptism of repentance. Thus, John the Baptist. Baptizo in, in the Greek is to immerse, right? It's not a little bit of splash or sprinkling. Immerse. And we'll get to baptism in a little bit. But Jesus himself said this about John, honoring him. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus also said, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Scripture just loves these dualities and paradoxes, doesn't it? We who are in the kingdom today are in the unique and privileged position to be greater than the greatest prophet. John the Baptist was great, 
not in the way the world measures greatness, certainly not in social status or wealth, but in the position he had in the pivotal moment in history. He was literally right there as the old covenant era ends and this coming new one being brought about, the ushering of the new kingdom. The last in the long line of prophets before him, predicting the Christ, he gets to be there in person. He is the greatest in that sense. And we are greater because where we are in history as well. We are in the new covenant. Look at verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Quite a convoluted phrase, but you see, this was already the second day. The first day, the day before, yesterday, John was already declaring about the one greater than he. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. See, Jesus is the preeminent one. Although John, biologically, was several months older than him, I think he already met in the womb, and John kicked when he saw Jesus in the other womb. That was kind of class. Um, but Jesus, or John acknowledged that Jesus existed before him, pointing to Jesus' divinity. The one who would put an end to sin has come. John has paved the way for this Messiah, and for that very reason, he came baptizing with water. And now look at verse 31, my second point, the greater baptism that Jesus brings. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I mean, we can't not talk about baptism, especially we're in the River Jordan, and John the baptizer is there, and Jesus himself was also baptized there. The Synoptic Gospels provide a more detailed narrative. And during this baptism that John bore witness that this truly was the Son of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 32 and 33. The Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove affirms this. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? What does this baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? A major topic of Scripture for sure, but I will just say this that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. As predicted by John here, this was fulfilled in Acts. Remember the day on Pentecost in Acts 2? For the first time, people were permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians covers this in greater detail. Very important to note, all believers have received this baptism. It's synonymous with salvation. And it's not a special experience, only, you know, experienced by the few. 
If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you have this one baptism. As Paul says in Ephesians, you have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We do not seek this baptism as if it was a separate experience. It's already transpired. The spirit baptism is the reality for every believer. You are united with Christ. You are in Christ. The Spirit seals you in Him. Amazing, amazing truth. Amen? The Lord Jesus, in His official start of His ministry on earth, had been declared in public the one who will bring this about. I love the fact that John twice said here, he says, I myself did not know Him. He says that in 31 and 33. But after seeing this, after seeing the Spirit descend and having borne witness to this, he saw the Son of God. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. We could not come to this conclusion by ourselves. The Spirit is the one who illuminates, the one who reveals Jesus to us for who he is. The believer who eventually surrenders to Jesus, placing their faith and full trust in Him alone, God is the one who makes this happen. I also love the fact, and I have to mention this, that the triune God are in this passage. Do you see it? In fact, we can see it in the one verse in verse 33. We see all three. Verse 33 says, I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me, who's He? God, in verse 6, God the Father, sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He, the Lord Jesus, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. God's work in our salvation is all the three persons of the Godhead working in perfect harmony. Kind of makes sense, isn't it? Three, unity, triunity, trinity. All three are witnessing to one another. What a wonderful and glorious God that we have. Perfect relationship with one another. And we are invited and we get to partake in that. It makes sense, therefore, that we as believers are baptized in, in water. And all believers are commanded to be baptized, by the way. And the, the singular name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in the Great Commission in Matthew 8. And so that's what I would say for our text. That's what's happening there, the ushering of the new kingdom. Now, my last point, and let me finish with this. Let's go back to the declaration by John. The greatest reveal that no one, or at least very, very few, anticipated. Let's go back to verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an amazing statement to announce. And to some degree, a bit bizarre, don't you think? Calling a person a baby sheep. But again, context always gives us the meaning. Consider the ones hearing this. Many people who are repenting and coming to John to be baptized. To us here in Ireland, when we hear the word lamb, what comes to mind? mint sauce, fields and fields of these creatures dotted all over this wonderful green island that we have. Fun fact, there are more sheep in Ireland than there are Irish people. Anyway, I looked up the stats. 
But if you were a first-century Jew and you hear lamb, and especially in the context of taking away sins, it would be an immediate trigger of a word that would take them back to Exodus. It will take them back to Leviticus. I won't read the full of Exodus 12 here now, but God gave specific instructions on how the ancient Israelites might be passed over by the destroyer. Remember the tenth plague? It will be the destruction of the firstborn. If your life depended on it, you would absolutely do well to follow that instruction to the letter, especially if you've just witnessed nine previous plagues devastate a powerful nation. The Passover lamb is the lamb without defect, a male, a year old, killed, and its blood covering the doorposts of the houses. If you have done this, the only way you, you would do this action is if you believe God's warning. And so faith is absolutely crucial to this. Let me read verse 13 of Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so a lamb would die so that others would be spared from judgment. Jesus is the lamb who died so that those who would believe in him, covered in his blood, would be spared from judgment. This is in this sense John declares Jesus as the lamb of God. There is this aspect in the Bible that we're probably familiar with in this aspect of substitution. We're familiar with that word, particularly in sports, aren't we? I don't play sports, but I used to play basketball in school. In fact, in this very sports hall. After school, we'd, we'd train and play. I'm not very tall. In fact, I'm not tall at all, so I played point guard. Um, but because basketball is quite a fast-paced game, no player is on for all four quarters. You'd be wrecked, no matter how good a player you are. The coach will sub you out. Hence, substitution. Someone else taking your place, or you take someone else's place. Jesus sees our hopeless fight in our, with sin and its consequences. He tags us out and takes our place, and he overcomes with resounding victory. But this substitution aspect is not new. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning, in the garden. When God banished Adam and Eve, and they were separated because of sin, God was gracious, clothing them in their nakedness, not with pitiful fig leaves that they tried to sew together for themselves, but with leather, which indicated that something died to cover them. Verse 21 of Genesis 3, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's go back to the Lamb of God in verse 29. Notice the possessive term here. He is God's Lamb in that God is the one who provides this lamb. If there were lambs of men, which there were in the thousands, those did not do anything by way of taking sins. 
Hebrews is very clear on this. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system that was established, however, foreshadowed the one and true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus himself. He takes away the sin of the world. The world meaning humanity in general. His once-for-all sacrifice is the one that actually did the atoning. There is this word that we should never forget. We should know this one. It's the word propitiation. Can we say that together? Propitiation. This word carries the idea that we appease God. We satisfy Him. We repay our debt by this sacrifice and so reconciles us to Him. But this we could never bring. He is the one who provides this. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. He meaning Jesus. The point is that Jesus bore our sin on his body, as Peter clarifies, who probably had Isaiah 53 in mind. Remember our memory song, if you memorize it? 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins on the body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And Isaiah 53 is just amazing on this. I'd encourage you to read that today when you get a chance. Isaiah 53. I'll just read a couple of verses, 5 and 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In verse 7 it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. The idea of the Lord Jesus taking our place, his death for our lives, bearing the wrath for our sin. What a good news to hear for a sinner like me. Is it good news for you too? On the cross, he has dealt with my sin, your sin? Do you believe that today? But not only our sin. You know what else? Our shame. He took our shame as well. In the garden, what did Adam and the woman feel right after they've sinned? They felt shame and they hid. You know, scars? Scars are kind of symbolic and literal in a way that it's a thing, if we have scars, we, we hide it. It's a thing that we'd be ashamed of, a defect, a form of a deformity. One of the things that always captivate me when I think of the Lord is the fact that our Lord Jesus, after taking on humanity, remember God, the Son, taking on human form, and after that, will be forever human. The God-man, Jesus, forever representing His beloved humans. Not only that, in His resurrected body, glorious forever, He bears the scars of the cross. And for this reason, He is exalted to the highest place. This is the reason for His glory. Paul tells us in Philippians, verses 8 to 11, And being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know the opposite of shame is? Glory. Our Lord Jesus displays the scars in His glorious body. Whether it's been taken literally or symbolically, we have to be careful in drawing conclusions in that. But regardless, do you know what this tells me? It's undeniable proof that our Savior indeed took human form, that He received those scars on earth from the work He has come to do, that He suffered, that the wounds He endured were lethal. It killed him. But he triumphed over the grave. By his wounds, we are healed. Do you feel shame this morning? Believer, child of God, you are with Christ in glory. He was shamed so we can be in glory. You can hold your head high. He lifts your head high. In that great throne, and we read in Revelation, I don't care if I'm at the very back row amongst the multitude, I will point to the center of that throne and sing at the top of my lungs, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He deserves to receive all power, all wealth, wisdom, might, all honor, all glory, all blessing, and all praise. When we, like Thomas, Remember Doubting Thomas? See that and touch the scars of Jesus, we will exclaim, My Lord and my God. And we do see this through the eyes of faith. But one day, we will see him face to face. I imagine there will be a really long queue examining the wounds our Savior endured. And forever, we will give him all the glory. The Lamb of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you have devised a plan to save us, Lord, in our hopelessness, in our helplessness, in our sin. We could not save ourselves, but Lord, you've provided a way. You sent your Son, taken on human form, to live a life of perfect righteousness so that when the time came, he died and made that great exchange our sin for His righteousness. And Lord, thank You that we, by faith we are justified. It is all Your grace. It is all because You love us. And I thank You, Lord, that, um, that You will bring this to completion. We will see You in glory. It's a done deal. You are victorious. And so, Lord, help us in our walk with You right in this earth at the minute to give You glory, to work, to work humbly with Your Son. I pray now that as we sing your song to glorify you, to sing worthy, worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.